you know, as a chief operating officer, we are, you know, in my role, I'm constantly having to decide things like, you know, resource and capacity, like, you know, how many project managers are needed to implement the software in this hospital? What are the potential risks? How do we come up with mitigation plans on those risks? Most of the things that I deal with on a day to day have not been figured out. They are completely new scenarios that we then need to make a certain level of assumptions in order to then proceed. Are you moving into health tech? The question on everyone's lips are what skills do you need for that move to be a success? And also, do you really need to finish your training to really be of huge value to an employer in the health tech community? So we answer these questions and more in this episode on how you can address the skills gap between being a clinician and a clinician in health tech and industry, whether that's clinical or non-clinical. And before we get started, as always, be an amazing part of our community. We really want you there because we are growing. If you go to medicfootprints.org forward slash join our community. Anyway, on to this episode which is with one of my dear friends, Jing. I'll tell you more about what he does just now. So let's get real. Our value as doctors has significantly diminished over the last decade. So how can we turn that around by upskilling and creating rewarding and impactful careers on our own terms? Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers, I'm your host, Dr. Baina Bubbers-Jones, and I'm on a mission to connect one million talented doctors with the best in diverse career opportunities. Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers, the episode, we're going back to health tech again, we love health tech, and we are talking specifically about the skills gap or the knowledge gap between being a clinician and being a clinician in the health tech world. And to address that question, I have invited one of my good friends, Dr. Jing Uyang, who is an incredible entrepreneur in his own right. He's one of the NHS clinical entrepreneurs. That's how I know him. But also he is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Patchwork Health. So Patchwork Health is a workforce management solutions health tech platform for healthcare. Um, so he's definitely keeping himself extremely busy on the the rotor side, obviously, but also managing to get clinicians in and around healthcare systems. So welcome, Jing. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Yeah, thank you so much. That was quite the uh, the lead in. Um, lovely to be here. I try, I try. Um, brilliant. Well, let's get started because I am really passionate about this particular topic, like the whole podcast episode. Um, and when we talk about skills gaps, it, it's always a tip, a tip on everyone's mind, especially as doctors, because when we move anywhere, like we do in medicine, we are used to saying, right, if I'm going to change specialty, for example, I'll need to go and do a course or start doing their exams and start studying and do a qualification of some description. Um, when moving to industry, whether you're doing it as a clinician or in a non-clinical capacity, there is a very significant gap that isn't always filled by doing more qualifications. So I'd love to hear more about what you think along those lines. So 
firstly, why is there a skills gap between working as a clinician and working as a clinician or non-clinician in, in industry, particularly when we're talking about health tech? Should it really be that different? And why is it that different? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it starts with our experiences in medical school, you know, Medical schools are, you know, structured in a manner, you know, they deliver curriculums to prepare us the best that they can for clinical practice. And I think, you know, we could easily get into a debate about whether or not they even prepare us well for, you know, you know, uh, a clinical setting. But essentially, you know, medical schools are there to, you know, teach us, you know, the basics of the science, you know, the, um, you know, the diseases, you know, how to treat patients. They aren't I think many of them haven't uh, adapted to modern times and are necessarily thinking about the alternative careers that uh, clinicians can take. As I mentioned, you know, they're structured to essentially get you um, from medical school into becoming a successful, safe and competent uh, junior doctor. So I think it starts from, you know, very traditional methods of, um, of education and the curriculums are very much geared to clinical practice and clinical practice alone. I'm going to jump in there and disagree with you wholeheartedly. Oh yeah, please do, please do. <laughs> no, I mean because I always reflect on my clinical, my my medical, I should say, medical education, um, and obviously the first three years you're doing a medical sciences degree, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to Nottingham, so I did a BMed Sci, and then you've got the the, the clinical years after that. I reflect, and I would say most of my clinical knowledge and applied clinical knowledge was really solidified and gained as a clinician so from f1 onwards i even and and i'm using an example of when i like literally in the first few weeks of med school year one we were told well we were offered um anatomy where you actually had a full cadaver in those times an actual full cadaver right um and i remember like it was such a great experience an opportunity to learn the body, the anatomy. But again, like I can learn by rote, you know, you can get, you know, do for exams. But I look back and actually I didn't really understand anatomy in, um, until I actually studied, started studying for my surgical exams, which was like a number of years later. Um, so I would say generally, I would say medicine is like hugely, it's a vocational experience. Like most of it is learned on the job. Yeah, I mean, that that's why I, <laughs> I disagree with you on that point. But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, so so you're you're correct there. It is it is very vocational, but that very much prepares you for clinical practice. You know, medical schools are laser focused at getting you to become a uh, you know a, a safe and competent uh, clinician. But in terms of then, you know, for many um, you know doctors or clinicians that want to then explore alternative careers, I would I would say that you know the their experiences from university in places like medical school did not uh, equip them with that wider um, experience needed to make that transition. And I think many of the clinicians that do make that leap realize that they have to adapt and and find those educational um, experiences in their own ways, either at medical school or when they become um, doctors exploring wider opportunities. 
If you look at, um, so as an alternative, if you look at, say, business school, you know, the business schools deliver a curriculum of, um, of didactic information. You know, there's a curriculum to learn, but then they also supplement that with um, real world experience. So many will facilitate internships. They'll bring in speakers um, from industry. They will um, expose their students as much as possible to, um, to those um, avenues that a business school student can take once they once they graduate. I think it's safe to say that, you know, from both of our kind of medical school experiences, we didn't really meet any kind of digital health entrepreneurs or um, any kind of uh, clinicians that um, that worked in pharma. Um, yeah, it was very much um, about learning the diseases and the clinical practice. I think absolutely. And it and actually makes me reflect on even so now I'm an occupational health physician, right? No one, not many people in medicine know that's a specialty. I didn't know it was a specialty until I went looking for it, right? And we ran a conference in the last, a few years ago, which listed the number of specialties that most doctors have never heard of, like never heard of. And that, obviously these specialties are small, they're unique in their own right, et cetera, et cetera. They don't they don't form the the foundation of medical practice, so to speak. But what, what I'm trying to say is there, yeah, no, I, I appreciate, obviously, there is a foundation of knowledge that we need to gain. Um, but at the same time, yeah, as you said, the real world experience beyond the clinical, it's not a priority in medical education. But if we're looking forward in the future to what healthcare will look like even in a few years time how should we what should be changed in the approach to you know the medical curriculum how should yeah how especially in relation to the burgeoning opportunities in health technology and actually what the future of being a doctor looks like what was it i saw an email marked i saw an email this morning i'm not sure if you saw i think this is this was on forbes right uh, some company that had raised millions, as they all do, several hundred millions. It's a U.S. company, obviously, um, to create a doctor in a box. So it's an AI doctor in a box. Mm. <laughs> You're smiling at me. Um, whereby someone could go and see a doctor for like, you know, a nominal amount. Right. Just walk in and have a chat with an AI doctor. So I'm using that as an example because, you know, we know that AI automation, all of those things are they're incredibly present in our world uh they're like it would be silly not to adopt these things but the question is what is the role of, of doctors now and in the future considering these technologies mm-hmm. how should we be repositioning ourselves and repositioning our value i know i've started asking a lot of questions but you can see where i'm going with this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I suppose the the first part of your question was around, you know, how medical schools adapt, um, how the education system can change. I think we're seeing a lot of examples of that already. You know, there are a number of medical schools opening um, that have to you know, sell themselves a bit differently. And they're taking, you know, more innovative approaches to their curriculums. Um, I suppose an example of that is, you know, for example, uh, Dr. Shafi Ahmed, who runs Bart's X, where they cover many of the topics that you just described, like, you know, the AI, blockchain, you know, the application of, um, of exponential technologies, of frontier technologies in relation to, uh, to healthcare. And at the very least, that 
you know, for many, you know, medical students going through, um, you know, Bath Medical School, they get exposed um, to those kind of use cases um, and potentially inspired as well. If we think about, um, you know, a second example that I have is after graduation um, of medical school, you know, you and I were both part of the Clinician Entrepreneur Program that was um, founded by um, Professor Tony Young. And again, that is a large scale national um, educational program that looked to um, empower um, clinicians, give them the the mandate, as it were, to to pursue innovations um, in their own respective um, organizations, but also provided a a curriculum that gave clinicians the skills around kind of like legal contracts, around fundraising, um, around technology building, that serve the purpose to essentially inspire and give some of the foundational knowledge needed to um, to explore um, you know their own innovations, or to bring um, innovative thinking back to their organisations um, as well. So I think there are you know a lot of initiatives out there that are looking to um, to kind of rewrite the curriculum and to supplement uh, clinicians' education to uh, to meet with um, changes in the modern world. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you mentioned the NHS ClinEnt because it does provide a hugely invaluable curriculum, particularly on the entrepreneurship side of things. And actually on that topic, do you feel or do you have any thoughts on whether that is something in itself that is missing from the medical curriculum? Because as we know, most medical curriculums historically have been very academically research focused. So instead of relying on programs like this, which are focused mainly at um, actual practicing clinicians, should we be going back earlier and really nurturing them at student level? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. I mean, you know, if you if you look at this in the context of the NHS workforce in general, especially with doctors, there is a huge brain drain at the moment. You know, many, many um, you know, we enter medical school when we're 18 years old. We probably haven't thought through fully like what our careers would look like, but we're entering into a huge commitment, you know, five, six years into a vocation. I think many will not have taken the pause to think, hmm, what do I actually want to do? Is this, you know, it's and we all know that with medicine in particular, it's a bit of a conveyor belt. And it's very easy to graduate med school, do your F1, F2, and then, you know, continue to be, you know, climbing this ladder without that pause to think, well, what actually makes me fulfilled? What actually makes me, um, what actually makes me, you know, happy? And I think then, you know, on on that basis, I suppose, like, opportun- opportunities are, you know, they there, there is always the headspace to think about the opportunities that are available. And I think so the introduction of these kind of programs like Bartex or like, you know, the Clinician Entrepreneur Program, they're not there to teach us everything there is to know about, you know, working in industry or starting starting a business. They're there mainly to show us what the art of the possible is, what others have managed to do, and ultimately to inspire us. Because I think to some extent, And it comes down to, I think, some of the personality types um, and the way that we're trained as doctors. You know, as doctors, we are, you know, trained to be very process driven. You know, we follow kind of, uh, you know, instructions, the protocols to treat our patients. 
We're also told to be, you know, very mindful of um, of risks, um, given the liabilities of, you know, treating treating patients. As a result of that kind of um, that kind of training, um, that kind of culture, it can be very difficult to then think, you know, take the leap and think about wider opportunities. And I think it's the case for most kind of. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, entrepreneurs or those that have made the leap into other industries, they may be reticent to do that because they are risk adverse and they don't feel like they have the uh, the tools or know how to navigate um, into those organizations, which is also a great shame. I think that, I mean, you've made some really valid points there, and particularly the last one on doctors naturally being risk averse, being used to following processes and guidelines and a lot of that doesn't really exist, especially in the entre- entrepreneurial world, which encompasses most most of health technology, because there is a lot of uncertainty. And um, last night uh, we had uh, the first of the several commercial focused sessions on our Doctors in Industry Fellowship, and uh, that was run to because we usually have guest speakers for each session, and this one was uh, with Michelle Griffin, who is a well she used to be an obstetrician registrar now she's a women's health medical advisor um, and she's had a really interesting journey since the beginning since she left medicine which took her through strategy consulting cancer research uk directing uh, she was at ttp as a consultant she's a whole load of other things and it was really interesting with her take on as doctors, especially working in health tech, especially working as an entrepreneur, you have to get used to the whole concept of uncertainty. When you talked about mm. climbing that ladder, you know, as I said, like not taking the pause from the age of 18, it's great because like our pathway is sorted for us, right? We don't need to even think about it. We just need to do the tick box and, and it's it's certain. Um, outside, and we we totally live in a bubble bubble because outside of that world, it it absolutely does not work like that. You can put in a lot of energy and everything you have into a business, and it can still fail, like that kind of thing. And it is so. It is really about being able to get comfortable with taking risks and also getting comfortable with that uncertainty, <clears throat> which you will never one hundred percent be comfortable with. But and and we so we talked about resilience in that context. And I know that we that's actually taking us to the, what we're talking about core skills, right? What mm. core skills do doctors need to develop for an industry or health tech career? So I mean, we've talked about entrepreneurship, we've talked about resilience, we've talked about dealing with uncertainty, risk-taking. Is there anything else that you deem important in that? Yeah, I suppose the starting point of that question is that I suppose tangentially or inadvertently, you know, medical school and practice as a uh, as a doctor gives us a lot of the skills needed to um to move into um alternative careers. For example, you know, medics are typically you know type A personalities. They're very competitive. They're very hardworking. Many will um explore opportunities in research um just to progress in their clinical careers. And, you know, and will develop like, you know, an, a, academic or analytical um, skills. I think the um, the so so already there's a lot of kind of like inherent skills from being a practicing doctor and, a, and an academic. And I think it's often the case that, you know, the the imagination is sometimes lacking in terms of how you translate those skills into um, into a life in uh, in in industry. For example, um, it 
like, you know, I knew a couple of, uh, of medical students that didn't graduate into becoming uh, doctors. They went into banking or they went into consulting. And when you think about those kind of examples, you know, it should raise the question of, well, why did though, you know, why are they selecting from, you know, uh, careers? Um, well, I suppose from courses that have no relation to the work that they'll be doing. They certainly didn't do finance or management uh, degrees. And it is just because like, it's certainly the the personality type, but also the fact that, you know, as medical students, as doctors, we're used to, you know, high pressure. We have a lot of exams. We have to assimilate a lot of information very quickly. We need to make very sound judgments. So I guess my first point on this is that as clinicians, through our medical training, we already have all the skills that are highly desirable um, in industry, and that can't be discounted. In terms of what is then needed, well, as I mentioned, it's, you know, firstly, it's a, a creativity to connect the dots, right? To take those skills and realize that they are transferable and how you present that is really important in making that leap into whatever um, alternative um, career that you, um, that you go into. I think we've covered the fact that I think clinicians having been trained to be very risk adverse and very process driven, need to get very comfortable with ambiguity, need to get very comfortable with a certain level of risk taking that they may not um, be familiar with. Those, I suppose, you know, I think there's probably more. I was going those... to jump in there just to ask about yes. the risk takers. We talk about it quite a lot, but in, as a clinician yourself, as a doctor who's gone into health tech, can you give us an example, even on a day-to-day basis, let alone the fact you've started a business, um, on what risk-taking actually looks like in practice? Ooh, a direct example. Well, I suppose, you know, as a chief operating officer, um, we are, you know, in my role, I'm constantly having to decide things like, you know, resource and capacity, like, you know, how many project managers are needed to implement the software in this hospital? What are the potential risks? How do we come up with mitigation plans on those risks? Most of the things that I deal with on a day to day have not been figured out. They are completely new scenarios um, that we then need to make a certain level of assumptions in order to then proceed. No amount of analysis, thinking, research will give me the uh, the definitive answer to those questions. And on top of that, the time pressure of making those decisions is very intense. You have to become very comfortable with uh, making decisions um, in an, in a world that is imperfect. You don't have all the data. You you don't have the luxury of time to work through all the scenarios. So, so I think that would be my prime example of how, you know, operating in a, in a, in a domain of uncertainty. I, I found really fascinating just the way you've described that. What was, what was your specialty before you uh, jumped ship? Well, I left uh, post uh, foundation year two, so uh-huh. I didn't actually have a true specialty. Uh-huh. Although I was academic uh, endocrine, um, I was on the academic endocrine foundation program. Sure. Um, but to be honest, you know, I don't think it um, is shaped by uh, by personality no, or no, practices. Because I was just thinking, like, I mean, again, I'm going back to my surgical background when I had to do trauma laparotomies, right? And obviously you go through mm. the course and you you have a structure, but at the end of the day, what's great about it is you, A, you have a structure so that you can deal with any uncertain scenario because when you're literally opening up, you don't know what you're going to find. You have your process and procedure, but then you have to make quick, informed decisions 
to actually deal with the scenario and that might be buy yourself some time by like packing and then leaving right mm -hmm. um but in, in you know you, you have more time here clearly um with health tech but I, I think it's really interesting what you you talked about that the time pressure element so when you talk about again in practice the time pressure what does that look like are we talking minutes are we talking hours are we talking weeks like who's setting the deadline who's deciding that I think the deadline is a self-imposed deadline, right? Okay. Because when, you know, in the context of myself as a as an entrepreneur, it's my own business. So, mm -hmm. you know, the faster the pace, you know, the, the greater the agility, the more likely you are to succeed. And as we know with startups, you know, the failure rate is very high. So you need to be adapting, changing, you know, making decisions very quickly and hoping that you make, you know, the most optimal decision uh, at the time. So there's, you know, those kind of deadlines. There might be external factors, like, for example, the board may have certain expectations. We as a management team may set certain targets or commitments. But by and large, they are um, self-imposed. Self I think I think that's great because I think about running medic footprints and yes, I think I always want something done a lot sooner than it actually will get done, <laughs> and and that that's always been the case always. And actually, I think for me on a personal level, now we're looking at actually how do we slow things down, and that doesn't make sense when, as you said, you've got you've got all these external pressures. And the other thing that we haven't talked about that doctors really need to get comfortable talking about is money. The M word. Mm. So again, as a co-founder, as as a senior lead, leader of your business, this may not be your particular job, but you've always got to be thinking ahead as to where is our revenue coming from? Are we hitting our targets? You know, at the moment, I know, you know, this funding is always on, on the forefront of every founder's mind, right? And so especially when we're talking about money, how as a doctor, as a clinician, where most of the time, you know, driven by money, we're driven by social impact, how do you navigate around that with regards to how do you change your mindset so you can tackle that without getting too caught up in it? If that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I suppose it's you can abstract that to some extent and talk mm. about you know the difference between being an employee and a director. I think for doctors, you know, a lot of doctors complain. You know, they complain about like the hierarchy. They put complain about the absurdity of their um of their jobs and often they face numerous kind of uh pain points but at the end of the day it is still a job there is of course the unique aspect to working as a clinician which is you know your responsibility to the patients but say you work in a e by and large if you are safe and you do your handovers correctly then you can leave you know the hospital and um and you know and you can do something else like you know the there is a, there is a finish time in your in your role whereas when you certainly you know in the case of entrepreneurship you can um you know when you go into um when you start your own business then that the responsibilities are much greater you you often can't switch off in that same way and that is where it also relates to the money as well because you know when you're an employee in a hospital you don't have to think about the budget of the department you don't have to think about the financial viability of the hospital when you become a director of a, of a business perhaps you have a bit more flexibility you know you're not doing certain things like night shifts 
but you absolutely are thinking about your runway. You're thinking about the money constantly. Um, and you're thinking about how you grow your revenue, how you maintain your bottom line, you know, all these things that have never been, um, never fed into the considerations. Um, when I, certainly in my case, when I was working as a, uh, as a doctor. So it's a, it's a, it's a much higher level of pressure and accountability. I've very well described. And, you know, I, I'm just thinking, if I had to, you know, knowing that I've been on both sides of the coin, so to speak, the employee and the employer or the director, I always reflect on had I known at the beginning which would I have chosen or would I go back to the other one because it was easier? And all the challenges that you've described, you know, I've, I've lived, especially being a director, you know, switching off or not being able to switch off is one of the fundamental challenges that I face and a lot of entrepreneurs face burnout is very common in entrepreneurs as it is in doctors right because mm. there is no real end point and yes you can say I finish at five o'clock but you don't really finish it but your brain does not finish mm. at five o'clock when you've got you know employees that you've got to to make sure you're getting enough revenue to pay them but also you've got to make sure that you're hitting your targets you, you want your company to grow you've got your north star how are you going to get that you've got to be creative there's so many things that's going through your mind um, but if you had to choose, if I'm, I think about if I had to choose between the two, I, I'm all, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still, I would still go with like being a founder, being a director and not having to, in, in some words, answer to anyone else outside of that beyond the people that I am serving, which are doctors, right? That That is what drives me. Um, and, I, and I just love the flexibility element of it too much. And yes, you know, the the risk versus reward, you know, I, I just I can't look back. And it's hard because I just think, you know, could I could I go and work for someone else? And and it's I, I do because I still do my occupational health work and I do do that. And mm. I I guess I still enjoy being able to switch off <laughs> when I finish my clinic and then coming back. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like if you you know, looking back, which would you choose? <laughs> I mean you know, there, there are trade-offs, right? Yeah. You know, and earlier in my career, I would have said, oh, you know, being an entrepreneur is the best thing ever. It certainly beats like, you know, being on night shift in the hospitals or, you know, in the context of, you know, everything going on with the junior doctor strikes, you know, certainly is more financially rewarding. Um, and as you've kind of described, it the autonomy and the control is enormously valuable so it ultimately comes down to um to the things that you are uh, that you prioritize having said that though like you know as i've gotten older and reflected on things a bit more it's not the lifestyle for everybody um despite all the frustrations with like you know portfolios and you know and working through a uh, through a complex system with lots of hierarchy there is an incredible amount of job security. Um, you do progress by and large every year. Um, and the work that you do as a clinician is rewarding in its own right. I do miss clinical practice. And unfortunately, with the way that things panned out with myself, I had to leave medicine um, to start patchwork. Uh, I couldn't have really had that portfolio career where I was doing patchwork, um, you know, for some part of my time and then still practicing as a clinician. That wasn't available to me um, to me at the time just because of where I was in my clinical career and the demands needed um, from my startup. I do sometimes think in an ideal world, I could have balanced the two. 
but it didn't work out that way. And this is also why I'm such a big um, advocate for the Clinician Entrepreneur Program, because a big part of that, of the ambition there, was to make the argument that clinicians could do both. They could, you know, drive forward their innovation while still, you know, uh, being in clinical practice. And that was also, you know, a big part of the retention strategy for the NHS workforce as well. But unfortunately, it didn't... Um, it didn't pan out for me in that in that manner. But to go back to your question, you know, do I, you know, would I do things differently? Like, you know, have I made, I suppose, the right choices on this? You know, I do think I have because, you know, what I do today um, has, I believe, far more impact um, than as an individual doctor. But, you know, it is tinged with a bit of regret because I actually did really enjoy uh, being a practicing doctor. But what I don't miss is, of course, the uh, the intense rotors and and the uh, and you know and some of the politics and the bureaucracy um, tied to it all. I mean, I think that's interesting because I deal with the same question, a very common question we get from doctors, which is, if I want to change or develop my career beyond clinical, when should I do it in my career? Should I do it at the beginning? Should I do it at the end? Should I do a CCT? Blah blah blah. And usually, I say it doesn't matter. And and that's it is generally my answer, but the just looking at your career, not giving career advice here, but like for example, I I made I made a decision to go into occupational medicine for many reasons from surgery. That is many reasons though, one of which an important one that I know a lot of doctors are looking for is the lifestyle aspect, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, I changed to occupational medicine at the same time. It coincided with when I actually started Medic Footprints. It wasn't deliberate. That's just what how it happened. And because of my choice of specialty, I was able to do both. And especially now when I'm not training, because I finished my training a while ago, that I'm able to do both and they feed into each other. So I guess the question is, it, had you been in a similar position, regardless of specialty, where you could have been, like, for example, we see a lot of GPs who become entrepreneurs or, you know, and, and you know, the, the GP pays for the entrepreneurship for a while. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I, I do wonder whether that could have been a possibility. Again, had you stayed a bit longer, not saying that was a necessity, but it's, you know, it's one of the things that I know a lot of doctors think about when they're thinking mm-hmm. about moving industry or, or starting up or whatever. I say, generally speaking, it doesn't matter, but this is an important thing to also think about. Yeah, I'm. I think that's a really uh, interesting question. What I would say is, if you can, you know, have mm. have a strategy in, in place. And I think you know what you're talking about there is picking the right specialty to enable that um, to enable you to explore um, different opportunities. You know, I did, you know, when I was a foundation doctor, I did two rotations of uh, of A&E. And I think, you know, and, and A&E is brutal um, in terms of the uh, the rotor. You just don't have a lot of headspace or emotional bandwidth to consider um, wider opportunities. So then, you know, if you if you extrapolate that, you know, imagine if I was to um, take, do a career in A&E then that would be the case for, you know, at least a decade. And even as a consultant, you are, um, you still have some on-call responsibilities. So, you know, with respect to that, as you said, you know, being a 
being a GP, doing three years and then qualifying is hugely appealing. But at the end of the day, like you have to pursue, you know, your your passions and your interests. And for many people, you know, listening to this podcast and um, and for clinicians look, you know, looking to kind of plan out their careers, they may not want to be a GP or they may not want to, you know, do a specialty um that um you know, maybe has a better lifestyle, but may not be, you know, academically fulfilling or um, or clinically uh, rewarding. And I think so it has to be taken, you know, the decision has to be taken in that respect. This The other point you made was around when best to leave, if indeed the answer is to leave. I think the starting point um, for me would be, is there a way of retaining your clinical practice while still exploring other opportunities? Hence the mention of the Clinician Entrepreneur Program. But should you leave, you also need to then assess, you know, what level of qualification you have. I left as, you know, post uh, foundation year two. So I had no specialism. I could not claim to anybody that I was an expert in any kind of clinical field other than maybe being a practicing, you know, junior doctor and understanding what the pain point of that is. Um, that was fine for the role and the um and the business that I went into, uh, because my experiences as a junior doctor were very relevant to patchwork, which enables flexible working, you know, software. And also the role itself demanded a lot of my time, you know, building a startup from ground zero. You know, you could be devoting, you know, 100 hour weeks to that and still not succeed. So, you know, you're trying to eke out every marginal gain, every advantage to make your business a success. But had I chosen instead to go into pharma, for example, well, you know, I know a lot of kind of colleagues who are principal investigators, you know, for uh, pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, they're very much relying on their, um, on their, you know, on their expertise in research and on their, um, and on them being um, CCT qualified, right? You know, reaching the top of their respected fields. Same goes, you know, with things like, you know, consultancy, you know, you you go in at a different level into a consultancy based on your seniority as a as a clinician. And, you know, having worked quite closely with many management consultancies in the context of patchwork, I also know that, you know, a bit more experience in um, in in the uh, in the domain um, really does uh, benefit on projects and benefits, you know, you uh, in in pursuing those alternative careers as well. So I think there's no there's no easy answer to this. There are a lot of considerations. And I think for anyone kind of deciding their career, you need to factor all these things in. Know, know what the considerations are when you, you know, when deciding what move you make. And I, I think that's really, really valuable advice because that there are a lot of moving parts in making that decision. And a lot of uncertainty that goes with it. As you said earlier, you can plan and strategize ahead, but you really don't know what the output is going to be unless you just go and do it, right? And so I would encourage, you know, think about these, consider, consider these moving parts. I know a lot of doctors have those financial considerations being at the forefront of the mind, particularly now, um, really kind of think and work it through, but you're not going to really know until you actually do it and then have mitigation plans within that. Um, but I have to say, I have seen a lot of doctors who don't have a specialty like yourself, Jing, mm -hmm. who fly, they fly. So I would say whatever it is, don't rely, you don't have to rely on your specialty to mm -hmm. have a unique selling point. You have to look within yourself to determine what that is. Only you can determine what that is. And that doesn't have to be you being a doctor. 
that can be part of it, but doesn't have to be it. Because remember, there are lots of doctors out, you know, doing the same thing these days, right? And so actually, it's about differentiating yourself from others. Um, and that's what you have to do in business all the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyways, but the last before we, we, we close off, um, what I guess we, we've kind of covered a bit of this question already, but uh, what value do you see doctors having in the future landscape of healthcare and industry? And how can we best prepare for this as doctors? So what what is the value that you see that we have in the future and how do we prepare? I suppose two things jump to mind. Um, the first one is our knowledge in working within a healthcare system. And then secondly, the kind of the deep domain knowledge that comes from, you know, pursuing a specialty. So when we think about if we if we just explore that first point, which is around, you know, understanding of the healthcare system, that is essentially how Patrick um, Health came about. It was from working from myself and my co-founder, Anas, working within, you know, NHS organizations as locum doctors, which inspired us to then um, start the business. Because we were, you know, whilst we were working in these organizations, we experienced numerous pain points when it came to booking into shifts, you know, having the visibility of what was available, getting paid on time. It was actually that exposure which gave us the uh, the insight, which then seeded the idea for uh, for Patrick. And I think in that context, I would challenge you know everyone who is um, working within healthcare system to identify you know um, the improvements that can be made, you know, and whether or not those kind of improvements can actually be translated into uh, into businesses. I think it's very easy for um, for clinicians to. Uh, to get together and complain about like, you know, their circumstances. Um, but I would challenge people to, you know, get a bit more creative. And, you know, because if that's a pain point that you experience, it's something that others can experience. So how would you, I guess, you know, exploit that? How would you capitalize on that to create something that actually improves the experience for the system and for your colleagues that are also experiencing similar kind of pain points? So I suppose that's one area of, um, of value, which is, that actually like the exposure in a healthcare system is valuable in its own right. Then secondly as well, like, you know, the deep domain knowledge that you gain from going through a specialty is incredibly valuable. Many clinicians, if you pick a, a competitive specialty, let's say cardiology, you know, many um, cardiologists will end up doing uh, clinical research. They'll end up doing masters and PhDs. They will become a true expert in their field. And I think then knowing what your value is and what you can bring to the table, you can then apply that in a variety of different settings. We talked a bit about management consultancy. We talked about um, pharma. You know, many pharmaceutical um, companies want to uh, be working with experts and uh, primary investigators. That may be a, a bit more of a long game for uh, for people who, you know, and, and may seem daunting for those earlier on in their careers, but a potential end game is to get to, get to become a consultant and then use that expertise and leverage that in a variety of different uh, organizations. We haven't even talked about things like artificial intelligence, for example, um, and some of the kind of like the, uh, the frontier technology Technologies. When I, you know, prior to Patrick, I worked in Alder Hay Children's Hospital, 
And they have a, you know, they're a, they're a great organization. They have invested heavily in innovation. They have an innovation hub. And while I was there, they were working with IBM Watson to um, to train the, um, to do some of the um, early work around generative AI and creating, you know, clinically safe chatbots. In that work stream, they were working closely with senior clinicians to uh, to entrain the um, the language models. Um, so again, that's another application of that expertise. So yeah, so I think definitely, um, you know, if you're willing to kind of uh, play the long game, you can get to um, consultants and then use your expertise and apply in a range of different uh, organ, you know, industries mm-hmm. um, and projects. No, I think that's that's really really helpful advice. And just before we finish, I'm going to play devil's advocate now, Jing. <laughs> so you and Anas, your co-founder, you post F2 locum experience, knowledge of the healthcare systems to an extent from a clinical experience and through the pain points that you experienced. Um, obviously, fast forward a few years, but you've managed to set up a company that is software focused. So I'd love to know where were your, where was your domain expertise there. You're working as a chief operating <laughs> officer. Where was your domain expertise there? I'd love to hear more on that <laughs> <laughs> very briefly. <laughs> yeah, because like, clearly, I... clearly, you know, you, you didn't have these things when you first started. You were both doctors. You knew what it was like as a clinician and those pain points, but you created a flourishing business as a result of that. But you haven't exactly got degrees in those areas we talk about. So I'd love to hear more. Yeah, very, very true. Very true. I think, you know, both Anis and I had that beginner's mindset. We had that naivety that thrust us into, um, you know, that gave us the confidence, as it were, to um, to pursue it. And you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. We did not have any expertise when it came to building software, nor, you know, nor in being um, being managers. I think looping back to what we originally talked about, which was some of the core skills we we you know, we I think we were. we were we had the personality type whereby we could apply those skills that we gained in medical school and connect the dots and then apply them into our um into our subsequent roles um within the startup unfortunately we managed to scale and we managed to uh stay on top and learn the other part of it which we didn't really cover um we talked a lot about skills but also experience is very important. So you're absolutely right that, you know, I certainly, you know, wasn't a um, a chief operating officer for some, from some Fortune 500 business that kind of landed in and brought in a load of playbooks. And, you know, for Anas, this was his, you know, we're both first time founders. This was his experience, first experience as being CEO as, as well. But I think what's really important is the experience that you can gain prior to um, to starting your uh, your business. So in the context of myself, uh, even in medical school, I was exploring all manner of different opportunities. I was doing research projects, getting involved in kind of student initiatives. Anis and I actually started a global health um, magazine um, while we were in medical school, and we actually um, saw some moderate success. I mean, no viable business model, but certainly we had some experience of working together and doing projects, and you know, and and launching them from zero to one. And I think these are the formative experiences that I would encourage you know medical students and junior doctors to uh, to explore. So when when I graduated uh, medical school and I went to uh, I trained as a doctor in the Northwest in Liverpool, where I'm originally from. 
you know, I got really involved in the tech scene, in the health tech scene there. And I actually worked as a uh, as an independent consultant for a number of um, organizations. So, for example, um, Liz Ashelpain of Orca, you know, gave me a number of big breaks. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and through my relationship with her, I, you know, I got to work with Alder Hay through Orca, through some other organizations as well. Speaking on behalf of Anas, you know, he he had a very um a very interesting background anyway, in that he was a graduate, um, he was a graduate uh, medic at Imperial. And prior to that, he already had a career in medical illustration and in software mm-hmm. design, having done, you know, a um a an undergrad in something completely different. And when we started patchwork, he was working as a Darcy Fellow in Chelsea yeah. and Westminster NHS Trust. And actually, the other half of the coin was that he got to intimately understand um, temporary staffing processes while he was a, uh, a Darcy Fellow. Uh, so uh-huh. you're completely right that we didn't have much kind of formal job experience, but we had been hustling hard um, in the years um, preceding and gaining experience and exposure in many different ways. I think, you know, when we look, you know, when we talk about the history of patchwork, it's very easy to um, to just consider it in the context of when we incorporated to where we are today. But if you look at our histories um, prior to that, we actually tried many different things um, before then hitting um, success with patchwork. So we already had some credentials some network and some experience that ultimately convinced the first NHS trust to adopt us and also our angel investors to back us. Uh-huh. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much um, for sharing that story and particularly when it comes for, in my mind, I mean, hash- hashtag hustle for skills. <laughs> if you want to be <laughs> successful, like use that experience and leverage it so that people really buy into what you're doing and will continue to back you. So thank you so much, Jing. Um, if anyone wants to get hold of you, what's the best way of doing that? Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or I do have a Twitter um, as well. Um, Twitter, I've never heard of LinkedIn. that platform, Jing. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> X, formerly known as X. Twitter. <laughs> Thanks. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And uh, let's hope to hear more of you in the future. Thanks so much, Jing. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay.